This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, we are sitting in the historic Schlenker Library here in Bomberg, Germany. Joining me to talk about the history of Bomberg Brewing and to talk about the Schlenker Library and its approach to brewing smoked beer is uh, Matthias Trum. Uh, what is your title, Matthias? Um, well, if, if we go by German definitions, I'm the Breu. And uh, the Breu is a combination of various jobs at the brewery. It's the owner slash brewmaster, housekeeper, basically responsible for everything. And uh, it's a very old uh, term. And I'm actually the Breu in the sixth family generation here at Schlenkerla. Sixth generation. Well, we are going to talk about uh, Schlenkerla's approach to brewing. But of course, you also have a, a deep interest in the history of brewing here. And you're going to share some of this. Being a sixth generation brewer, uh, clearly there's a lot of history right here for you. We're going to get into all of that, as well as some of the, the ways that you make smoked beer and, uh, in a very Schlenkerla specific way. Before we do that, for years, Gene D. Chillers has chilled the beers you love partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at five o'clock and nor do they. G&D uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24-7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG, proud partner of Global Hop Breeder and Merchant Hopsteiner. As one of the world's largest independently family-owned hop merchants, Hopsteiner has been connecting brewers with the choicest hops and hop products available since 1845. Explore Hopsteiner's unique and exciting hop varieties like Bravo, Calypso, Lemon Drop, Lotus, and Sultana, and more at bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops. And if you're Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Let's start with some history, Matthias. Uh, where do you want to start? Where uh, where does this family history and, uh, you know, and Bomberg's brewing history intersect uh, in the earliest of days that uh, you can recount? Well, Bamberg dates back, Bamberg brewing history dates back really, really far. Uh, Bamberg was founded more than a thousand years ago um, as a king diocese, actually, by uh, Emperor Henry II in, in, uh, of Germany, or Holy Roman Empire of Germination, as it was called at the time. There was no Ger German central nation as we know it today. And uh, the first brewing records of, of Bamberg are that of the uh, Benedictine Monastery on the St. Michael's Hill. So uh, they were founded in uh, 1008, so like one year after the uh, uh, King Diocese. So uh, that monastery is actually older than the Weinstefan Brewery, which today claims to be the oldest brewery in the world. Um, they started in 1042. And uh, the Benedictine monasteries, uh, the, the monks, they were all brewing beer. So um, from the beginning, they had beer up there. And the first records of brewing are, uh, I think, 1122 or something. 
and they had centuries and centuries of, of history of, of beer making. Um, it was like the science capital of the medieval Germany at one point because they had a lot of research. They were writing books. Um, they think Michael Church, you can't go in there at the moment because it's being renovated. They ha have something called the Heaven's Garden. When, when you're inside the church and you look up the Gothic uh, ceiling, you have very detailed depictions of, of plants uh, from, from Europe, also hops and all that in included. So it's like a herbarium of the time. And they were very scientific also about brewing. And in 1804, they were closed during the secularization. Um, like all the monasteries were uh, closed and the property was given to the state. And in Bamberg, something special happened. Um, the monastery with the church and the brewery, the at the time 800-year-old brewery, um, were given to the city of Bamberg and Bamberg made a foundation out of it and continued to operate the brewery. Um, basically, they leased it out to commercial brewers. And one of those brewers was my great-great-grandfather, the first generation of my family in, in the brewing business here in Bamberg, Konrad Graser. And he ran the St. Michaelsburg Brewery for 25 years. So that was not a short time. It was a quarter of sure, a century. Sure. And uh, we actually still have a, a brewing protocol book from him. I rediscovered that a couple of years ago after my grandmother died, age 104, um, in her, well, I call it the treasure, treasure chest. Uh, when, when we opened up there, there were a lot of books on brewing and old family pictures and, you know, what old ladies keep in their chests and, and don't pass it on to the children until you actually get there. And, and you find historical brewing logs in yeah, this process. I mean, that's, this is, that's kind of a score. Yeah, yeah, it totally was. And I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And since in Weinstefan, I did my major on brewing history, um, Weinstefan Brewing uh, University, that is. Um, it was just a lucky coincidence that I was able to understand those things. Of course, I, I needed a historian to transcript some of the books because they were in uh, old handwriting. And especially the Brewing Protocol book of my ancestor, I couldn't decipher the writing. So it took like a half a year or so until I found someone who could decipher it and transport it to, to modern language. And then we went through and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, starting 1840, um, he protocoled every batch of beer he made water amount, malt amount, uh, fermentation temperature, hops he used, et cetera, et cetera, a small taste description, whether the fermentation went well or not. And um, it's, it's really a, a treasure from a, a history, a brewing history point of view. And I don't know anything that old and that detailed from, from anyone else. Of course, and using measurements that uh, were far predate uh, the metric system. Very or, challenging. Uh, or even current to measures of temperature. Yeah, very, very challenging. So um, it was not liters. It was not uh, kilograms for malt. Um, the malt was actually measured uh, by volume at the time. So there was uh, Scheffel and Metzen which is the old unit at the time. So you had to recalculate that using old uh, uh, calculation factors. Um, the, the beer amount was calculated in buckets. That was the number, not hectoliters or something. <laughs> sure. So um, I think a bucket was something like 104 point something liters. I mean, Americans can relate to that because when they translate the, the gallon and, and that to the metric system, it's always a challenge and you always have these uh, point something figures. But when you come from a historic point of view, you really get to appreciate the metric system today because it makes things so much easier. 
And yeah, temperature, um, the Celsius scale, which is the standard today, zero freezing, 100 boiling, um, wasn't used by the brewers at the time. They, uh, they used the Rayomir scale. I actually still have a thermometer of the time with that Rayomir scale um, in, in, in my living or in our old living room. So uh, my family was collecting all these things. We have old hop-carrying buckets uh, out of copper and stuff like that. So it's a little museum and all in there. So um, it was a little bit like a Sherlock Holmes work of beer you know, to, to put together all these pieces. And it was really interesting when I, I put that together and I did like a, an Excel analysis on, you know, uh, water, uh, malt per water ratio and these things. And it was quite amazing that when I looked at it, I was at first puzzled and said, Some, something is odd about these recipes. And um, the malt ratio seemed too high. And in the beginning, I, I thought that I had a, a wrong factor or something or that uh, something else was wrong in there. But I, I researched in other books and, and talked to other people um, who had written about Bamberg history. Kristen uh, Fiedler, Dr. Kristen Fiedler, he's uh, uh, very resourceful. He wrote a book on the history of Bamberg breweries. Bamberg, die wahre Hauptstadt des Bieres. Um, he has a website, Bamberg uh, slash beer uh, .de, beer with the E-I, like the German writing form. And um, he found in old records and shared that with me that uh, Bamberg beer originally had the uh, um, reputation of being very wine-spirited. Hmm. Um, so at the time, the term high in alcohol didn't exist. There was no measurement for rate of alcohol. Uh, so beers with a lot of alcohol were called wine-spirited. A um, little bit uh, on, on the self-esteem, a little bit hard on the self-esteem <laughs> sure, of modern sure. brewers that there's a reference to wine, but that's just the way it was. So apparently Bamberg beers were higher on alcohol than elsewhere. And that's where the uh, Bamberg beers got their good reputation from. I mean, today, if you look to the rating websites, beers with more alcohol usually score better. It's, it's, it's true. Yeah, and uh, it was no different 200 years ago. Uh, beers so. with more alcohol and beers with more residual sugar, both of those things. E exactly. So th there's just more complexity in the flavor, uh, and people enjoyed that. And so that was the high esteem of Bamberg. But the, the, the problem was that you would lose a lot of extract in, 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 this, in the spent grist. So it didn't make sense from a historic point of view because back then barley was, or in general, nutrition was more valuable to, than today because the yield and the harvest, all that right. didn't go to the extent as today. Starvation was, was, an, was a topic. And um, I found other corresponding books in which they say that uh, Bamberg brewers um, had actually two products which they made. Uh, one was beer, obviously, and the other product was called Heinzlein. And um, it turns out that this Heinzlein was basically a secondary beer. So um, after running the first batch, brewers would do a secondary batch with the spent grain. Um, they did some other things with it, which I don't want to go into because sure, uh, that's a sure. little bit of a... Uh, family history um, but this Heinzlein is a low alcohol beer um, we, we actually brought it back three years ago um, we were bored during corona time so we said <laughs> we do something different <laughs> now plus low, low alcohol beer is on trend you know there's certainly more consumer interest in this right now too yeah I'm, I'm, I'm having one here I mean it's like uh, 11 in the morning and we're having a talk and uh, I have to work later on so um, the, the Heinzlein is my office beer it has 0.9% alcohol and the interesting thing is that using this old Heinzlein brewing technique, which in Bamberg was common at the time and which you can conclude from the recipe books from my ancestor, um, you get 
um, a beer which is uh, relatively or quite strong in the beer flavor, but low on the alcohol at the same time. And you don't have these typical flavors which you know from modern alcohol-free beers because, as you know, um, we have all professional listeners, I think, today, um, the conventional or the modern alcohol-free beers, they're pasteurized. Uh, very often the alcohol is extracted by either filtration or um, uh, by, by um, distillation. And sometimes they also use modern types yeast, which have a lower alcohol production. Right. All these things didn't exist 200 years ago. So uh, back then they only had that different laudering technique. And since we still have the same kettle size as back then, we were able to translate the recipes very closely to the original production method. And we basically just did a trial run and, and look what, what happened. And it turned out that the alcohol was 1.1 in that trial batch. Mm. So I said, come on, let's tweak it so we have a zero point because that sounds better. Um, so some marketing approach on that <laughs> one as well. And as you professional brewers know, the alcohol always goes up and down 0.123 between batches sure. because it's never exactly the same. So we we do it uh, to the 0.9. And voila, there we have a normal tasting beer with 0.9% alcohol, which technically is low alcohol. Yeah, not not yeah. no alcohol, but um, that's a legal definition. Uh, no alcohol in, in Europe is 0.5 or below 0.5. And uh, other beverages have other alcohol limitations. Um, uh, apple juice, I think, is 0.4. Grape juice in Germany uh, is allowed to have up to 1% alcohol. So when you get They a, give those grape growers a little more leeway than they give to brewers. The, I'm sure there's a technical background behind it, but the fact is when you buy a grape juice for your children in the supermarket, you, you might end up giving them a 1% alcohol beverage, which with a beer you would never do because you say, oh my God, this is just not possible, but it's just a legal definition. So if Heinzlein were a grape juice, it would be alcohol free, but because it's a beer, it's low alcohol. So it's really, if, if you want to stay out of alcohol, you have to go to the 0.01s and those are the technically mutilated mass-produced beers where you get all the aroma uh, out and then you have to re-aromatize it and uh, yeah it's it's a beverage you it's can seltzer. drink it's seltzer it's sparkling water with uh, extracted beer flavor to, to to make it to to give it some essence of beer but not a beer something like that i don't yeah. i don't want to devaluate those because sure. there's a lot of technological uh, background to it knowledge sure, to sure. it and uh, but it's not traditional beer making and right. from a historic point of view it was simply impossible to do it so since Schlenkela and official company name is Hellebrau Hellebräu um, since we're all about historic beer making that's not the road we want to walk uh, sure, besides sure. we're too small to walk it anyhow <laughs> that's the <laughs> other side side of it well let's talk about uh, you know the growth of smoked beer and uh, how that came about and uh, where that fits into the history before we do that Take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With AccuBrew, you'll have precise control over the fermentation process and ensure consistent, high-quality results. Their cloud-based app and compact sensor work together to monitor specific gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. AccuBrew is CIP-ready and designed to stay out of your way. Their set-it-and-forget-it solution streamlines systems and processes, confirms consistency, and helps detect problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Visit accubrew.io 
to learn more. Also, ProBrew has always been a dedicated and trusted partner to breweries, especially when they make the leap to canning their product. That's why they only sell rotary can fillers, which significantly reduce product waste and produce higher quality product than an inline can filler. Need proof? Visit ProBrew at booth 433 as well as at their party at Yazoo Brewing at this year's Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville to RSVP to their event or schedule time with them at the show. Visit them at probrew.com slash CBC or email contact us at probrew.com. Probrew, brew your beer. And did you know your water can change the flavor profile of your beer? Water is the number one ingredient after all and uswatersystems.com knows just how to treat it. USwatersystems.com has been at the forefront of the craft brewing industry and created American-made water treatment systems with brewers in mind. Whether you're a hobbyist or a pro, head on over to USwatersystems.com to learn more because great beer starts here. Well, let's talk about uh, where smoked beer fits into this. And uh, you know, as some background, Joe and I arrived on Friday night last night, um, popped around town uh, all evening once we got here, uh, and it was simply an amazing sight to see young people, old people, people of every age, every gender, uh, pouring out onto the streets in front of breweries throughout Bomberg, uh, buying or grabbing beers at the window inside the, the entry to the brewery, stepping back outside, spilling out everywhere, everyone drinking brown beer and drinking smoked brown beer, especially around here. Uh, it's something you don't see in other countries and, or even most other cities for that matter. Um, it's such a uh, interesting and unique Bomberg experience. So you know, why don't you walk us through where smoked beer became this, uh, this Bomberg uh, signature? Well, the first thing you need to understand is Bamberg has 70,000 residents and 10, uh, 10 or so breweries, depending on how you count it. You know, not all of them are independent anymore. Um, but there's only two smoke beer breweries. There's uh, Schlenkler, where we talk about today, where I'm from. And the other one is the Spezial Brewery. All the other breweries in, in Bamberg are uh, craft breweries, small family-run operations, but they don't do traditional smoke beer. Um, some of them might have modern interpretations of it, but traditional smoke beer is only at Schlenkerla and, mm -hmm. and, and Spezial. Um, by traditional, um, I'm going back into the history of beer making and, and where the smoke beer came from. Um, when I was little, uh, and I think it still very often happens today, when, when you do a city tour around Bamberg, uh, like a, a guided city walk, Bamberg has a lot of beautiful sites, old churches and stuff like that. So you can do a tour and you get all the... Uh, uh, art history behind it and one stop is actually in front of Schlenkerle um, where the guides will tell about smoke beer and where it came from and when I was young there was only one story which they told uh, that at some point in the middle ages uh, the brewery burned down by accident and uh, the smoke uh, went of that fire went into the malt and since the brewer couldn't afford to throw out the malt since his place had burned down um, he had to use that burnt malt to make a beer. And so the beer had a smoky flavor. And for some weird reason, the locals liked the flavor. And henceforth, he was brewing always that, that way. Not meaning that he burnt down his brewery all the time. But uh, yeah, so that was the means. So um, I don't know who, 
ever came up with a story. <laughs> sure, sure. The, the, they, they clearly don't understand how malt would have been processed, uh, uh, you know, for hundreds or thousand plus years over that time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there were there was various forms of that story. At one point, I read on the website of Mercedes-Benz in Japan, for some reason, they were writing something about Bamberg. And their version was that an oil tank exploded and the burning oil was pouring into the beer and that's where the smoke flavor came from. So seemed like a car technician's point of view for, for me. Uh, so definitely no, no beer knowledge behind that. We're going to clear up some of this apocryphal history today and as well as some of the, the urban legends that surround some of the ways that uh, Schlenker Labrus, sure. Um, I mean, the stories are fun and these yeah. urban legends help carry your name. So I'm, I'm not battling them, but uh, of course you have to uh, tell the true story as well. And as we all know, beer is the oldest nourishment of mankind. It has been around for 10,000 plus years. Uh, 2018 in Haifa in Israel, they discovered the to date oldest known brewery. I think it was 13,000 years ago. And um, if, if you look in, into detail where, uh, growing crops came from, where beer came from, that's all the same territory. The, uh, so-called half moon, uh, area of today, uh, Iran, Iraq, Kurdistan, Turkey, uh, Mesopotamia, all the old high cultures were brewing beer, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, the basic principle of beer making was always the same. So you started with a grain, you needed to malt that grain in order to activate enzymes, which then later on in the mashing process would break down the starch into sugars. And then you add yeast, either spontaneously or controlled, and the yeast will then ferment uh, the, the sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. So that basic principle is what we all do still today at sure. our breweries with various technology levels and with various techniques. Um, grain types can change, yeast types can change. Um, the spice you add could change. Like today, hops is the common thing, but all, all kinds of other herbs and spices were used over time. The, um, the Egyptians were using dates, for instance, so that w would have been a very sweet kind of beer, probably also with high alcohol because the sugar of the dates would also ferment into alcohol. So... Um, the basic principle always stayed the same. And when you do uh, a malt production, usually it's necessary to dry the malt before you continue with uh, your, your uh, actual beer production. Now, when you want to dry malt, there's historically two ways. You can either air dry it out in the sun or by, by warm air, which probably was the common thing um, where beer was invented because it's uh, a dry uh, climate down there. Um, traditional houses in, in those areas still today have flat roofs, like they don't need uh, to prepare themselves for a lot of precipitation. And on those flat roofs, all kinds of, uh, like you can live up there or you can uh, sit there and you can also produce food up there, you spread out your grain and dry it up there. So that was probably the common technology. Roof malted barley. Roof malted barley, exactly. But there's also um, uh, excavation sites and records that show that even in the Bronze Age, um, uh, fire kilning was common. So when you can dry a malt with an open fire. And the oldest kilns are uh, from uh, Jordan from the Bronze Age, so some 5,000 years ago. And uh, the technique basically was that you made like a hole in the ground um, in which you could light a, a small fire. And then you cover that hole with branches or, or maybe even a piece of wood with holes inside. And then you put your grain on there and you dry the malt that way. And um, here in Central Europe, 
where the climate was relatively moist, that was basically the only way you could do it. And when you dry a malt in such a way, it's unavoidable that the smoke from the fire goes into the malt and gives it, gives it a, a smoky aroma and flavor. There's an old excavation site here in Germany. Um, it's called the Hochdorfer Dargraben. Um, it's from 500 BC, so roughly two and a half thousand years old. And in that they found residue ashes from a fire and also roasted uh, uh, malt grains, barley malt grains. And you can actually uh, look at those grains in a museum there. So hmm. it's well documented, well recorded that smoke malt was the standard malt in the old ages. And it stayed like that for tens of thousands, uh, for thousands of years um, until uh, the British came along. <laughs> sure, sure. And not because they didn't like the old production, but um, in the 17th century in Great Britain, um, the, industrialisa the industrialization started. Sure. Um, England was leading the rest of the world in terms of free trade rules, um, power of the people like the Magna Carta, which limited what the king could do. And also because of his strategic uh, situation on an island, England was not much invaded or didn't have much problems with wars at home. So that favored economic development. I think they also had a very early patent system in which basically if you have a good idea, you can make money from that. So that triggered more good ideas. And England was leading the rest of the world sure. in that. And because of that, all the big inventions of the industrialization, the steam engine, um, the weaving stool, all those inventions were done over there. And one of those inf in inventions was the smoke-free kiln. Um, on 23rd July, 1635, a Sir Nicholas Holtz from Cornwall received the first patent um, for a non-smoke kiln. And... Um, Basically, the background was why he made that invention. Um, England had a, a, a wood supply problem. Um, they had cut down a lot of their forests for shipbuilding, for colonization, and they were dependent on wood imports. Um, they bought a lot of wood from the Dutch, uh, and the Dutch would cut that down in, in the Baltics. Um, so there was a lot of transport effort behind that. If you want to look at it from a modern point of view, energy imports from the East. They were dependent on energy imports from the East. Some things never change. History always repeats itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And the British king didn't like that dependency. Also, it cost him a lot of money. Uh, so protectionism wasn't a topic back then. I mean, Brexit today, it's, it's, it's always the same story again. It's, it's, <laughs> sure, it's, sure. it's always the same. So um, they wanted to become independent of that. And they had a fuel locally available, coal, um, which, which was from the burning value ideal to uh, sure. brew beer and to dry malt. But the problem was the smoke from the coal is unaromatic. Right. So that's something you don't want to uh, have in, in, in your beer flavor. So here comes Sir Nicholas Halls. And what basically what he invented was um, that he built a secondary construct around the uh, fireplace of the kiln. Um, and the primary fire chamber had like uh, a pipe system that let the smoke outside the fire chamber and this fire chamber heated up the air in that secondary construct and hot air always rises to the top we know that from the chimney so this secondary smoke-free air was then used to dry the malt but 
in his patent, he describes you can also use it to dry uh, linen, to dry hops. Yeah? So also the hop kilns were switched to the new technology. Mm. And so Nicholas Holtz actually calculated that the British king could save 400,000 pounds per year in wood import costs if we were to switch to his invention and use coal, sea coal or whatever uh, fuel they wanted to have. Because in that type of kiln, it doesn't matter what you burn because the, the, the gases from the fire will never get in contact with the product. And, as and the king had to make sure that his, their subjects had beer. Exactly. That, that was the thing. And um, so the patent was re uh, rewarded and the, the, the authorities supported the new technology also because it was lower in fire hazard. Yeah, like the fire does sure. not get in direct contact, like sparks flying up. They couldn't go into couldn't the ignite, malt, right. couldn't ignite the malt anymore. So, um, and you had that secondary construct, which sure. kind of shielded the fireplace. So there was a lot of... Um, so that was the diversion from the smoked flavor and malt. That was the diversion. So the new beer or the new malt because was... Because I appreciate this large connection to this long, long history of beer that you're making for this smoked beer that you make right here. It's a, it's, you're we, laying we, a deep foundation for this, and I appreciate we, we, we that. Com we're coming to Bamberg. I'm sorry. My, my, my wife always says I, I talk too much and I should cut down, but... I no, no, no. I love this. And we've had actually this... We had this conversation with Vaslav Burka a, few, a couple months ago because, you know, the invention of Pilsner depended on this technology, you know, to allow for malt there that would allow them to make right. those beers. You know, this is, it is a modern industrial invention, you know, these modern beer styles that we make now and they do depend on this. So it's interesting to hear your in-depth history. I, I, I really do enjoy hearing about this. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. And then you're going to, to pull us back to, uh, to this more traditional method uh, that, that involves uh, wood fire and smoke. Yeah. And I mean, th th there, there's a story behind that, how it ended up that we still do this. So, um, Again, in uh, 23rd July 1635, so more than 300 years ago, that patent was awarded in, in the UK. And it took like 100 years or so hmm. um, to change all the kilns in England. There were further developments. The patent was refined. New patents were issued. Um, it's all well documented when you look into, into the brewing history. And around 1800 or so, the industrialization swept over from England to the continent. Not only in the beer making, but also like the, the steam engine and all that. So um, Germany and other countries in Europe started to copy what people in England did, uh, very often by not following the patent system. Yeah, just <laughs> Sure, little intellectual what, property theft. Yeah, I mean, we know it from China today, but we, we shouldn't complain too much about it because that's how, how other European countries did it the same. There's, while, while we're at it, um, there's this very interesting story of the Spaten Brewery of Munich. Um, the Spaten Brewery was actually the first brewery or one of the first breweries in Germany to dismantle their Bavarian-type kiln, meaning smoke kiln, and replace it with an English kiln, meaning non-smoke kiln. That was around 1800. And the owner at the time was Georg Siedelmeier the Elder. Um, his son, Georg Siedelmeier the Younger, he actually did an uh, espionage trip to, uh, to England together with a friend and they wanted to understand more about the fermentation technology England had developed. So England already had the, um, I don't know the English term for that, uh, the, the, the measurement with which you measure the, um, the sugars in the beer, the original gravity, that swimmer. I, I don't know the English word for that. Hmm. Um, it's like a thermometer. No, no, no. It, it's like, um, 
it's Spindel in German. You put it in in uh, in, in 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 the beer uh, in the, in the fermentation, and it sinks in into the beer depending on how much sugar there is in there. And then you can measure on the scale what the original gravity is. It's a it's a hydrometer. Hydrometer. Yeah. Okay. So hey, I learned something. Thank you. Hydrometer. Sure. Um, so uh, what what basically he did, he wanted to understand how in England fermentation was done because uh, the British brewers had it better under control than the Bavarian brewers. And so what he did was um, with a friend of his, um, they went over to, to England on a lengthy trip and they had a walking stick with them. Um, you can imagine a stick. Sure. With, and the walking stick and the handle had a little button. Uh, and when they pushed the button at the uh, bottom of the uh, stick, the bottom of the stick would open and they could pull a sample from the fermentation vessel. And then they take that sample home to the hotel with them and measure uh, uh, the... <laughs> The quality there, so it S worked. Espionage, uh, total the, espionage. The earliest, yeah. And and it worked in such a way that the friend of Georg Siedlmeier had the job of distracting the brewmaster while he would take the sample, and they would go to various brewers and do that, and bring that knowledge back to to Munich. And there, then, it was copied and brought up to Carlsberg. Um, and that whole bottom fermentation story with the bottom fermenting yeast, et cetera, et cetera, that revolves around that knowledge that was gained during that uh, Esperinage trip. When you look into the history of the Spaten Brewery, they have that well documented on the website. Read it up. It's, it's just an amazing story. <laughs> and from today's point of view, when you think of the Chinese, what they are all copying, we in Germany should be really quiet because that's just how we started. And in England, they, uh, England was leading in the, in the beer technology. And so they were in the malt technology. So um, around 1800, the Spaten Brewery was the first one to install a non-smoke kiln in Germany. And the same happened here as in, in England. The fuel was cheaper, um, production was uh, less of a fire hazard, and uh, official channels endorsed the new technology. I mean, we with our traditional smoke kiln still have debates with the fire marshal here uh, on how we have to handle things. And it's much easier when you do it the modern way. And um, so in Germany, within 100 years, the same thing happened, which uh, happened in England. And for Bamberg, uh, the before mentioned Christian Fiedler, he actually documented that around 1800, all the Bamberg breweries were doing smoke malt. And at the time, we're talking about something like 70 breweries in a town of 30,000 residents. And by 1850, only 50 years later, roughly half of the breweries had already switched to the new technology. Mm. And around 1900, um, only four breweries were left that did traditional smoke beer. All the others had switched to the new technology. And the four left around 1900 were Schlenkerler, Spezial, those two that still do it today, um, the brewery Greifenklau, um, Greifenklau still exists today as well, but they stopped their malting operation after World War II. So they don't have a traditional smoke beer anymore. And the fourth one was the brewery Polar Bear, um, which doesn't exist anymore. They closed in World War II altogether. And already in the 1920s, um, we see ads in newspapers. I have that in the family archives where people talk about or where it's pointed out that Bamberg smoke beer is something unique and something special. So that only took like one century from... For people the, to forget what was what was the norm, exactly, and then, it, then start treating it as something uh, exactly. Yeah. And and the term 
Rauchbier, which is the German for smoke beer. Rauch means smoke, that guttural CH, Rauch, which is very hard to pronounce for a lot of people from, from England or with English uh, no, uh, language background. So Rauchbier, that term, first for the first time, you find the term Rauchbier in a document in 1899. Before that, it doesn't exist. And that document of 1899, again, Christian Fiedler found that. He's really amazing what he researched about Bamberg. That document of 1899 actually is a fictional travel report about Bamberg where somebody says, oh, Rauchbier, that's something you, knew, you only find here. So in 1800, everybody was making Rauchbier in Germany. And in 1900, suddenly, Bamberg is the only place where you can find it. And Thanks to this English technology, damn Thank, it. Yeah, so it's all the English faults, uh, of course. No, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always like that. You know, you have new inventions and then maybe one or two people decide to stick with the old uh, technology for whatever reason. And that now is the real interesting question. Why did Schlenkeler continue to do it the old that way? That was my next question. What was it about Bomberg, Schlenkeler, Spezial that, that led them to continue doing it the old way? Um, there's a number of influence, like there's not one reason and there's not like a written document uh, that, that, that says it, but there's a number of influences. First of all, the breweries are very small. Um, Bamberg never had something called, um, uh, uh the, the Bannmeile. Mm. In old days, usually the cities were so powerful that they, uh, were able to disallow brewing around the city limits, like in the villages around the city, so that the villagers around the city had to purchase beer from the local breweries in the city. That was, um, a, a, they called it Bannmeile, like a protection mile sure, around the city. Sure. Bamberg never had that hmm. for whatever reason. So beer diversity always was higher here in Bamberg. Brewers were smaller. Uh, Bamberg was never never had any big export brewery like uh, Kulmbach, for instance, or the, the big industry breweries you know these days like the Spaten in Munich. So Bamberg was all very local about beer making. And um, the, the problem with smoke mold making is you have to do it manually. You cannot automate it. You cannot build big kilns. So you need small craft breweries to do that. And uh, all over the rest of Germany, these small craft breweries disappeared or vanished, most of them. And here in Bamberg, that structure remained relatively intact. A lot of them closed too. World War One, World War Two was horrible. But... Um, a lot of the breweries actually survived. So that was the one point. The second point was... Partially too, because many of the breweries here have other lines of business, restaurant, guest house, other things. I mean, is that, how, how do you stay in business? I, I think, I mean, the, 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 the uh, Cologne brew houses had that as well. I yeah. don't think that that made a significant mm. okay. uh, difference. I think the difference is really that they were small family operated places. Um, the, the second effect was that uh, Bamberg had a relatively easy access to high-quality wood for killing the malt. Mm. Um, to the west of Bamberg is the largest beechwood forest of Germany, and beechwood is the most suitable wood or the most traditional standard wood which was used in the old times for killing the malt, whereas the modern fuel, which was used in other operations, coal, had to be transported by train over long mm. distance. So it was easier with that access. Um, the next step is, I think, the history where Bamberg came from. Um, I said originally that Bamberg was a king diocese, so uh, a Catholic town. And we know Catholics are very open for new developments, you know, like women's equality and stuff like that. That always happens a little bit later with the Catholics. And You're saying they're conservative about some things. Uh, yeah, 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 just, yeah. Just a little bit. And um, 
so I, I think that conservatism, which often is depicted in a negative way, yeah, but con to conserve comes from from Latin conservare, mean, which means to preserve something, which uphold, which means to uphold something, to bring it into the next generation. And from that positive point of view, I think. Um, my brewing family, my, my ancestor, uh, Michael Graser, he was the important one in that respect. He was very much about keeping old traditions and, and preserving it the old way. You've seen the Schlenkerler Tavern. Um, it's basically like a time travel when you come in here. You have all these old depictions on the wall. You have a Gothic ceiling um, in, in the Dominicana Klause, which used to be the chapel of the Dominican Monastery of Bamberg. You have the old tables, the old chairs. Um, uh, in, in, in Altes Lokal, the tables are something like 90 years old. And my great-grandfather, Michael Graser, um, when he inherited the place from the original Schlenkerler, from Andreas Graser, he was a very young, young guy, actually. And he wanted to go to university, into arts, into uh, the, the beautiful sciences. And now he was pushed into running the brewery here and he put his mark in the brewery. And I think he was the one who recognized, well, this is something special. This is something close to extinction. This is something we need to preserve. And he very deliberately made the choice of continuing the smoke malt operation. And I probably something similar happened over at Spezial. So, um, I mean, Michael Graza was the one who, in the 1920s, when all the brewers here were, you know, craft people, but not very business-oriented or, or uh, uh, yeah, modern in that respect, he registered Schlenkeler as a trademark. And Schlenkeler was the nickname of his uh, father. We can talk about that later on. Uh, so he was, I think he was the... the uh, the, the the real founding father of what Schlenkeler is today because he saw the potential and at the same time he felt obligated to preserve the old tradition and he turned Schlenkeler into what it is today. And he made the decision, yes, we continue the smoke beer. He put out some of those ads where it says, hey, Bamberger Rauchbier, that's something special and that's only here. So with everything I do today, I try to honor what he has done in preserving this this old tradition. And um, one of the success we had was that in 2017, Schlenkerler and Spezial were uh, enlisted in the Arc of Taste by Slow Food because uh, us two, we are the only breweries left in the world since the old days that have been doing smoke beer continuously over time. Obviously, nowadays, there's a lot of smoke, smoke beers around there. You can buy smoke malts from the big industry maltings, um, Best Malts, Viking, and whoever all does that. Weiermann here in Bamberg, quite famous, of course. Um, these are modern type industry malts, which are smoke flavored, um, or craft brewers smoke flavor the malt themselves. But it's not the traditional way of actually killing the malt with an open fire. Um, doesn't say anything about the quality. It's just the historic background and certain flavor components. And Schlenkerle that sounds like something we should dig into later on as well. Yeah. Um, um, so so Schlenkerle and Spezial basically uh, were the ones who preserved the style to modern modern age, and that's why Bamberg turned into that famous smoke beer city. Not because our smoke sure. beer is the best or or the most widely sold one. That that doesn't matter. It's we've been the keepers of the 
of the old secrets and uh, of, of, of the old tradition. It's interesting to think about that same question that every brewery in every age, you know, faces everyone always faces the, the decision to preserve what you have been doing versus embracing modernity and what appears to be next. And there are certainly opportunities with each of those. And oftentimes the opportunity presented by modernity and change in the future, it looks very attractive, especially to newer generations in any business, if it's a family operated business. Um, you know, but at the same time, we look back now from our perspective and see how valuable and beautiful these things are that have been preserved and, uh, and, and uh, conserved like that. And those are also amazingly rich things that add to this broad world of beer that we live in now. Um, both of those things are interesting valuable, but, but it's also interesting to see how people make those decisions at any point. And I'm certainly, I'm, I know many beer fans around the world today are very happy that Bomberg has uh, preserved what it has. I want to talk about then how, you know, how you make the smoked beer before we do that, no matter what you are canning, Twin Monkeys Beverage Systems has the solution. With a versatile lineup of quality canning and packaging equipment made in the USA, their troop is ready to customize a setup for your craft business. Need on-site training or help with installation? You got it. Visit twinmonkeys.net today to learn just how easy it is to get your craft into cans. Also, everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing, no matter what style and recipe you choose. It influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel all at the same time. And brewing a lager is no exception. Discover a whole soft lager range by Fermentus, covering from traditional to modern style lagers. Soft lager S189 for the elegant lagers with floral notes. Soft lager S23 for fruity and hoppy ones. And soft lager W3470 for your neutral beers. Available in 500 grams, 100 grams, and 11.5 gram formats. Want to learn more about soft lager yeasts? Visit www.fermentus.com. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. We know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Let's talk about, the, let's maybe start talking about the malt process that, that you all use. As Again, as much as you're willing to share about that, there are some proprietary elements to this that uh, uh, you want to protect with those family secrets. But, um, you know, but that malt that you make and malt yourself uh, as the business is this fundamental thing that allows you to make that beer. And, and uh, so why don't, we, why don't you talk a little bit about what that process looks like? We try to stay as close as possible to the historic process, of course. So um, it's historically worked in such a way, as I was pointing out, you had that hole in the ground and you made a little fire underneath and then you, you put your barley in there, probably small amounts. And um, it scaled up over time. Uh, it's well known how the British, uh, the, the Scottish... Uh, whiskey distillers do it with peat malt. Sure. So it's a similar technology in, on our end. So we have a conventional steeping and germination technology. So nothing special there, no floor malting uh, for, for that matter, um, because those nuances of the floor malting uh, pretty much covered by, sure. by, this, uh, by the strong smokiness. Plus, we don't have the space 
though we might be working on that one a little bit, but uh, maybe in the future we, we can bring something up there. But we have a convent, uh, conventional germination technology at the moment. And the smoke kiln is actually a traditional one. So we, we still have um, the traditional fireplace underneath. Um, we use uh, beech wood from local forests still. Um, the beech wood needs to be dried at least three years um, in order to get a good burning value. And then um, it's like you see on the pictures on our, our website, basically the fireplace and uh, the maltster puts the big logs into, um, into the fireplace and then um, the heat rises up uh, and, and dries the malt. A little bit different today than in the old days is we actually have a ventilation system in there. In the old days, it was just an, uh, uh, an open kilning process <clears throat> and someone had to go in there like, two or three times a day with a shuffle and turn it over um, due to labor protection laws and uh, various fire protection laws that's no longer feasible today so we have a heat uh, um, a ventilation system in there like you know from from modern uh, uh, kilns but the heat source is the fire and uh, that's that's the big difference so that's where the smoke and the and the flavor comes from um, and it's always beechwood uh, no. Uh, Beechwood is uh, uh, the the major uh, okay. uh, wood we use, and the classic smoke beer, the Urbach, uh, the the Lent beer, which we have at the moment, all those are done with beech smoke malt. Um, when I was researching for Wein Stefan for my diploma and also uh, general beer uh, interest, I found in old records that in England, actually, before the invention of the modern type kiln, um, oak was very often used for, for kilning the malt. And not only for kilning malt, but also for drying fish and, and other items. So in, I think it was 2007 or eight, we made a trial batch with oak wood just to see what happens. And I expected the malt to be uh, darker and, and stronger in smoke flavor because you, yeah, maybe it's a little bit naive, but you have this impression of a strong oak tree and, and, and sure. it has a very high burning value. So we thought that it's going to be a more intense smoke, uh, smoke malt. But in fact, it wasn't. It was smoother, more elegant in the mm. smokiness. So we decided to turn that into a Doppelbach, uh, the Schlenkeler Oak Smoke. Um, which here in Germany we serve at Christmas only or in the Christmas time, you know, winter, cold weather, and then in, in, in a nice glass you have that double bock with 8% alcohol and a real smooth smokiness to it. Um, I think in the United States our importer sells it all year round. And um, so that's a very nice addition. The, the Oak Smoke Double Bock won gold medal at European Beer Star last year as best strong smoke beer. Mm. And... Um, to give a little outlook for this year, but not going into details, we're actually going to bring two more beers this year to the market um, with other smoke uh, or with other wood-dried malts. Um, I've did some uh, more research and in fact, other types of wood were used in the old days as well. And so we're going to bring two more. Um, on 23rd of July, uh, we have the Smoke Beer Preservation Day because in remembrance of that patent, which was issued on 23rd of July, 1635. So every year on 23rd of July, we do a little celebration here in Bamberg, Smoke Beer Preservation Day, like brewery tours, um, an unfiltered edition of the classic Meritzen. Um, I give a little presentation on the history of smoke beer. And this year we're going to have uh, at least one of those two new beers. The other one is probably going to come in fall. So we want to broaden the knowledge of, of the beer lovers out there uh, and make them aware of that other wood was used as well. Um, the fact that beech wood became 
the common uh, 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 wood for vault making. I think is it was easily available, relatively easily available. It had a high burning value. And because smoked beer uh, survived here in Bamberg and here beach was the common tree, it became kind of synonymous. But I think usually brewers would use whatever fuel they had locally sure, available. Sure. Think again of the distillers that use peat. And um, it's I, like brewers everywhere. They use the hops they can get local to them. They use grain that is local to them because exactly. beer has always been a local product wherever it's made. Yeah. And I, I think I read a report some at some point that in the United States, uh, uh, quite some craft brewers are experimenting with own uh, smoke flavors in, in, in their malts. Like uh, you can take a ready-made malt and moist it a, a little bit and then in, in your uh, home barbecue, give it a, a smoke flavor. Mm -hmm. And you, you can experiment with any type of wood. Pine, pine trees usually wouldn't work too well because it's too harsh on the aroma. Yeah. But all the other types are, are interesting. Um, for us, uh, it's not uh, uh, all about the flavor. Like the flavor is at the center, of course. But since we need to actually operate the kiln with the wood, we also have to look at a relatively good burning value. So we cannot put scrubs in there or something like that. That just wouldn't work. Um, again, we want to do it from a traditional point of view and not from a taste extravaganza that we have like the weirdest flavors possible. We want to show what historically was common and existed. And if it's an interesting flavor on the side, hey, the better. Sure. How does your process differ from, uh, say, some of the larger you know, production of, of smoked malt? Um, I actually don't know how the big industry maltings are doing okay. it. Yeah. Um, I figure their kilns are much larger than ours. Yeah. Um, our kiln is about four tons per batch. Um, at the bigger places, it's probably in the hundreds of tons. And when you have a kiln that size, putting some logs underneath probably, well, very likely won't bring enough heat. So they have to do it somehow differently. How they do, I don't know. Sure, sure. I'm sure that's proprietary for them as well. Exactly. And uh, we'll have to ask them those those questions too. Um, well, then let's talk about the beer making process and maybe let's focus on the classic uh, Rauchbier. Uh, Rauchbier, yeah, it's very difficult. <laughs> Merzen. Um, you know, is this now 100% smoked malt beer? Um. Uh, not a hundred percent. It's like ninety nine point something. Okay, <laughs> almost one hundred. Almost one hundred. Round it up. Yeah. Um. The the thing you have when you do smoke malt the traditional way, um, it's not as controllable as modern malt making because obviously, depending on the outside temperature and um, how the tree had grown, the smokiness and especially the color in the malt they vary a little bit. And since the classic Meritzen is something we have all year round, all the time here in the tavern, we want to have a constant color uh, in, 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 in the beer. So we need a little bit of roast malt in order to balance out the variances between the mm. smoke malt batches. So yes, we add a little bit of uh, uh, roast malt to that. But other than that, it's just pure Schlenkerler smoke malt. How does the malting process impact the performance of, of that barley? Um, it's actually not as good as, as in modern brew houses. Sure. Like our laudering times are, are longer. Um, filtration is, is a challenge. Um, I just, when was that? Like two or three years ago, I had a debate with the supplier of the uh, filter units. Um, like we have a Kieselgur standard beer filter. And uh, you brewers out there know when you get a supply of these filter layers, they tell you, I don't know, capacity is something like 2,000 hectoliters and then you need to change them. And we always had like 
only half of the hectoliters which uh, which were given uh, in in the in the technical statistics, and that's of course something that goes into the money. So uh, and and you get these sheets from from the supplier, and it says in milk it's like I don't know 500 hectoliters, in beer it's 2,000 hectoliters, in water it's whatever. And I looked at the beer figure and said, we only get half of that. What's what's going on there? So I talked to the representative of the company, uh, company and he said to me. Well, you do Schlenkerla, you don't do beer. Schlenkerla is no beer. That's, uh, it's a different thing. Yeah, you, so debate ended there. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, just another thing that costs more in smoke beer making than in normal beer making. And uh, uh, it doesn't burn too much on the cost level, luckily. But um, this is really what it shows. When, when you do it the traditional way with 100% traditionally made smoke malt, um, it's in very... Uh, in many points of the production, it's a, it's a challenge and you need to know what you're doing. The yeast management is, is a thing. For instance, some of you out, out, uh, out there might know that there's a Schlenkerle lager as well, a pay lager, um, which is brewed not using smoke malt. It's conventional pale malt, but it always has a smoky flavor to it simply because it's fermented by yeast which has fermented smoked beer before. So technically, um, it's a challenge for us to make a beer without a smoky flavor. For the Pale Heinz line, which is uh, not a smoked beer, we actually always have to get fresh, fresh yeast for the, sure. for, for the first batch because once it's in contact with the, uh, with the Schlenkerla, with the smoked beer, it's been contaminated and it goes through everything. There's, it's been blessed. There's, it's been blessed with that beautiful smoke character. There, there's another story to that. My father told me that. In 1997, we decided to introduce a smoked wheat beer because in the 90s, wheat beers became very popular in Germany, rise of Erdinger and Schneider and all that. So um, a lot of people here, in the, uh, especially young people in the tavern, ask for wheat beers. So we said, well, historically, also wheat beers were smoked beers. So we did a smoked wheat beer. Uh, but we didn't have the capacity at the time, like we didn't have a fermentation unit to do top fermenting yeast because all the other Schlenkerle beers are bottom fermenting. So we asked a befriended brewery to do it for us and we supplied them with our smoke malt. And uh, so in, in the Schlenkerle wheat, only the barley malt portion is smoked and the wheat malt is normal. One. And so that befriended, I don't won't say the name, that befriended brewery um, made the beer for us and the owner was complaining for like months after that his beer still had like a certain smoky oh, did he, flavor. Because he, he repitched the yeast. <laughs> he, he, he didn't, he didn't, no, he didn't repitch no. it. He didn't get it out of the system. Like oh. he had to change the beer filter, the, oh. mal, the malt mill, everything <laughs> sure, had to sure. be replaced because it, it just stuck in there and yeah, didn't, didn't yeah. get out. So um, from a positive point of view, Schlenkerle is always something that sticks in your mind and sticks in your equipment. You don't get it out there. Once we're there, we never go. It's a, you know, it's a process of natural selection, right? And, oh, yeah. uh, and apparently the smoke is a dominant trait uh, that uh, tends to override and overpower those other. Um, well, something I'm fascinated about, like for 100% or most almost 100% uh, smoked malt beer, um, it there's not a rough intensity to the smoke character here. Um, you know, American brewers in particular, when they're brewing smoked beer and, and even brewers, you know, as we were talking to in the Czech Republic earlier this year, um, get a little nervous about, you know, smoked malt components that, that, that rise uh, to some significant level. Um, and many, you know, get afraid if you, you know, creep past 20% or 30% and they start, starts to overpower the, the, the taste of the beer. 
but obviously something that we've seen in, in the world of brewing smoked beer is that that's that smoke character doesn't work in a linear fashion it's not as if using 50 percent is twice as much as as 25 percent um it seems to find its its groove it finds its place and that 100 percent doesn't necessarily hit you as that much more rough and smoky than a, than a lower percentage you know, as you think about designing these beers, uh, you know, and, and how those beers are brewed now, you know, how do you think about the way that that small smoked malt uh, flavor works along that kind of process of percentage in a beer recipe? Well, I, I think the big difference is actually what type of smoked malt you're using. Okay. If, if you do it the traditional way, keep in mind when the old kilns were constructed, such as ours, the intention was not to smoke the malt. The intention was to kiln the malt. And the fact that it got smoky was more or less unavoidable a side effect. Whereas when today you buy smoked malts from an industry producer, this is considered to be, or the intention is to add an aroma to your beer. So I think in, in and again, I don't know how exactly they do that, but of course they want to have a lot of smoke in their malt because if you buy smoke malt from um, a, a big producer to flavor your beer, and then it's not smoky, you're going to complain. Yeah? So I, I presume that the, the type of smoking in, a, in an industrial level will result in a different type of smoke than when you do it the traditional way. So our traditional way enables us to do the beer the traditional way because in the old days, all the malts were smoky, so sure, you would not sure. do a blend. There's no, yeah, there is only 100% of this malt. Sure. Exactly, exactly. Like even roasted malt, what we're doing today, even roasted malt only started to uh, exist in like the 1900s uh, or 1800s in the 19th century, in the 1800s, um, when those roasting patents uh, were, were uh, issued. So um, in the old days, you would have varying colors between the batches. That just was, was it. So... Um, I think using the traditional smoke malt gives us more options there. And we too do uh, various versions. Like we have uh, um, the, the Lent beer, which is 50% uh, smoke malt and 50% normal malt. And I agree, it's not linear. Like even the tiny fraction in the Helles Lager you perceive, which is like homeopathic in, in, by comparison uh, what you have for the, for the classic smoke beer. But there's a big difference between the industrially smoke-flavored malts and the traditional ones. And it's the same with Spezial. Um, uh, we sometimes talk, and he always says that the smokiness in his malt, in his opinion, is so much different than from the one in the commercial ones. I've, I've never worked with the commercial ones. I only worked with ours. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's more, more subtle, and you have more options there. Sure, sure. From the small process now, you, you, now you're using this malt in, in the brewing process. Are there... The next, you know, as we as we walk through this brew in a, in a kind of linear fashion, are there concerns then through that mashing process that feed into the way that your traditional uh, smoked malt works? Um, you know, obviously you use a decoction process, you know, I imagine through that. Um, talk, talk to me about how that feeds into making this smoked malt work in the way that it should. Um, that's actually a little bit of a challenge. So um, we know modern malls to be very high in yield. You have a very high degree of attenuation. You you can use the very quick infusion method, which is all about uh, 
uh, mass production, basically. So the modern barleys are bred for the big brewing industry. And for them, it's all about efficiency, you know, like do 50 batches a day and then one batch, if one batch takes 10 minutes longer, the whole systems get screwed. For craft brewers, that doesn't play a role. Yeah? Yeah, you do one batch a day, or maybe in our case, it's three batches a day, one batch is eight hours. Uh, we have the time. But still, uh, the rate of attenuation is, 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 is a topic. Uh, um, we don't have that much of a yield per batch. We use a relatively high amount of malt per batch. Um, the classic smoke beer is a Mertzen-style beer. Um, which again is close to the historic stronger beers of, of Bamberg, um, 13.5% original gravity, 5.1% alcohol. And um, yeah, decoction mash is is important. With the infusion, we rel uh, relatively quickly would get a problem um, in, in the, the degree of attenuation and also flavor-wise. Um, I know that Modern craft brewers often are being told, ah, you don't need decoction, you can use some caramel malt and you get the same same effect. And um, that doesn't work for a traditional smoked beer and it certainly doesn't work for Schlenkerler. So decoction really does a difference in the flavor. Just from you're, you're trying to do two things, I think, that, with that mash at the same time. And one is to promote the attenuation that you're going to need. But two is also to lock in some pleasant balancing residual sugar because there is some of that that helps soften, you know, and make it a, a very palatable beer to drink. It just needs to have the right character to that residual sugar as well. Definitely. Um, I always call it, and I'm not sure whether that's in line with what other brewers say, but I always call it the breadiness. Yeah. When, when with a decoction mash, you get closer to, to food. And again, from a historic point of view, beer was food. It was not a party beverage, as a lot of people regard it today. It was part of nourishment. That's why purity law, that's why all these important regulations and the importance of brewing back then. Why did a small town like Bamberg have 70 breweries? It was not that everybody was doing a party here all the time. That was about nourishment, bakers and brewers. They were the supplier of basic need. And you have to think beer is food. And then the rest falls into place. And for that, you need the decoction mash. Um, the, the nourishment of the beer uh, comes out of there. And you extract more of the grain and um, also uh, when you look at modern brewing technology often you have these steam templates on on on, uh, uh, on on the brewing kettle you try to save energy obviously um, modern type like the um, Schoko from Kaspar Schulze in Germany where you extract through vacuum and can even decrease your power consumption there historically um, boiling was done with open fire like on the old uh, brewing kettles had an open fire underneath the smoke of course doesn't go into the beer because it's close in the kettle sure. but you have a very high temperature gradient between the fluid which will never go above 100 degrees celsius because then it starts to evaporate and the fireplace underneath and a normal fire would have a temperature of say 400 degrees celsius something like that and so you have a gradient from 400 to 100. And that's going to give you caramelization effects on the floor of your brewing kettle, which then you notice in the beer. Um, that's not going to happen with a modern brewing technique. With a modern brewing technique, when you have steam uh, plates or, or uh, uh, high-pressure brewing, you have something like 110 maybe, 120. So that's a totally different temperature gradient. It gets your evaporation done, it gets your calculation, and all these things you want to do in the brewing, but you're missing on the caramelization point. You can uh, replace that a little bit with a caramel malt, 
but it's not going to be the same thing as the original decoction mash. And that's why in all these traditional beers, um, and not only Schlenkerler does that here, uh, a lot of German Bach beers are brewed using decoction mash, mm -hmm. Trappist beers. Um, that's going to do something to the flavor. Whether every consumer will notice in the end, probably not. Yeah, you, you can do it cheaper for the mass market. But for those who know what they're drinking and have an understanding of it, it's definitely a difference. At a, at a beer competition, um, those people will always be able to tell apart one from the other. Sure, sure. And obviously there's different conductivity and heat between copper and stainless steel, which is commonly used these days, versus, uh, you know, then there's, you know, those, the, the uh, anyway, there's, there's lots of, so you are using a direct fire brew house, copper, stainless steel, um, it's copper. It's copper. And it's uh, gas-driven these days. Mm -hmm. uh, at my father's time, it was oil. At my grandfather's time, it was coal. So I don't know what's going to come after gas. I mean, that's like a, a sure, big topic sure. now. Hydrogen, fire, or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, But um, <laughs> sure. uh, I, I want to stay with the open uh, fire system at all. Energy-wise, interestingly, we, we just did a calculation. I mean, the last one and a half years have been a turmoil in mm -hmm. that respect. So um, every brewer is looking into energy conservation and what sure. they can do. And we just completed a research and a comparison with other breweries. And apparently, um, we're actually not that bad using energy consumption. And even our own gas uh, fire, uh, open gas fire under under the uh, brewing kettle is only like 10 15% more energy intensive than a modern system so yes that is money difference but changing to an all new technology and thereby changing the flavor no yeah that's not something schlenkeler would do sure sure <laughs> are there parameters to your to your mash and decoction that uh, you find help build the character from that that you're looking for um, because not all decoction mashes are the same um, different brewers even here in germany have different approaches to to time and uh, where they want those pieces uh, you know and uh, some are trying to achieve different things for different reasons with that um, you know how how do you approach that well we have and, and not that anyone else can do it because they don't have your malt uh, and so this is very much a process that ties in specifically with the ingredients that you use well, we have the old family recipes and how have we have been doing it all the time. And that's actually something I don't want to go into details. Fair enough. So um, <laughs> there is a Schlenkeler way of mashing and uh, it's going to do something to the flavor. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's then talk about some of the other recipe concerns in here because, uh, you know, hops and bitterness, uh, you know, is a component of, of uh, you know, the merits and, you know, there's also some of that balancing sweetness to it. Um, you know, you are trying to build this idea of drinkability even within the smoked beer so that, uh, you know, the crowds of people that are here to drink this uh, can all enjoy it and, uh, and drink many of them while they are here. Uh, because if you just sold somebody one highly flavored beer and they only drank one and left, then you would not be as successful as a business. That's not your goal right here. Your goal is to make beer that people can continue to drink beer after beer after beer. Um, sometimes starting at 9.30 in the morning here on a Saturday like today. Um, you know, so talk to me about how you build some of that, that balance uh, and how you find these other flavors uh, you know, and ingredients to balance that work well within the, with the smoke kind of character of your malt. So um, that's actually also very tricky because <laughs> the smoke is a very dominant sure. flavor and uh, using the decoction mash, we get a very rich malt flavor. So those two are in balance, but then you have to make the hops suit to that. And when you look at the technical values of the classic Merzen 
uh, uh, smoked beer, um, it's actually quite surprising how high the bitterness is. It's actually mm. similar to what a Pilsner has. But when you drink it, you don't perceive it like this. Um, that's simply because you need to keep, as you said, the balance between these various uh, flavors. So um, we don't use aroma hops in the classic smoked beer. We only have uh, the strong, intense, bitter hops. Um, classic Halatau, Magnum, uh, Hercules, one of these uh, styles. We actually vary a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, again, as the professionals out there know, every couple of years you get a new type of hops coming out. Now with global warming, that's an issue um, that the hops are more uh, dry, dryness resilient. So there's going to be quite some change in the coming years in that respect. But um, these fine nuances of the aroma hops they usually don't stand a chance against the smokiness and the rich mold right. character. So for the classic Meritzen, it's all about standard bitter hops, really. Um, the story is different with the Oak Smoke Double Bock. Um, as I was saying earlier, the, uh, um, the, the oak uh, yields in a smoother and more, more, uh, more refined smoke flavor in it. So for that one, we actually work with aroma hops and we, we tried with various versions of that. So here... Um, it's it's a, it's a bigger challenge to get the balance and to get some additional aromas and flavors over uh, from the hops. And for the two new styles which are coming up uh, this year, we did a, quite some experimentation with various hops types because we wanted to enforce the flavor that came from those types of wood through the hops, um, just to 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 bring out the point stronger. Mm and uh, um, to make the difference more more noticeable. So, yes, outside the beach range, you can do something with aroma hops, and you all know out there what the uh, diversity of hop aromas is. And um, we go, you were talking earlier about designing flavors. We, we do pretty much the same as other brewers in that case. We, we get the descriptions from the hop supplier where they say, is this a more an earthy flavor or is it more a fruity flavor than that? And then we maybe do a small trial batch and see how this could work out. And then uh, we step-by-step, step, we get closer to the final flavor we have. Uh, once we have established a flavor, I mean, the, the old Schlenkelers have been around for, for centuries. Yeah? That's not something you fiddle with and change the flavor. Yeah? It's, it's just about keeping it that way. So when we do something new, like the Fasten beer, like the Eiche, um, we try to quickly get to the optimal point but then keep it that way. Mm. Like we're not an experimental brewery. Uh, a lot of craft brewers, they have like, I don't know, every every two or three weeks, there's a new batch coming out with a new flavor. And a lot of people look- Or twice a week for that or matter. Or twice a week for that matter. A lot of customers look for that sure, kind of sure. thing. Yeah. So it's 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 not a question of whether the one or the other is better. It's, it's just a different approach. For us, it's more about stability and creating something and then keeping it that way. And um, so we put more effort, I think, into the first couple of batches. With, with the Heinzland, for instance, when we started it, we had like four or five batches, full batches, um, which we didn't use because mm. it wasn't optimal to the point where we wanted to have it. So um, once we go out, we want to be at the point where we say, yeah, this is the beer, how we think it was historically, how we made it up um, in the taste understanding of our brain. And uh, once it's there, it's gonna stay like that, as long as the raw materials are available. Of course, we we have to go with a time when a certain barley type is not available anymore, a certain hops time, then you find a replacement. But luckily that's seldomly the case. Talk to me about building some of that balance in the, the Hellas. So obviously you mentioned that it's not a smoked malt. It had some smoked flavor. 
you know, clearly that is there in the beer. And so you are then designing a, a you know, that pale beer, uh, in a way that has to both embrace that and, uh, highlight that and, and work well with that smoke character. I didn't do that. That was my great grandfather, Michael. Great grandfather. Wow. Um, it's an interesting story to that as well. Uh, that was the 1920s after World War II mm -hmm. and the hyperinflation in Germany. You might have heard of that. A big economic turmoil. Um, the German mark was devaluated to a point where you had to pay billions of marks for, for, one, for, lo for lo one loaf of bread. And um, The reason Federal Reserve banks now try to fight inflation uh, uh, at any cost. Um, well, no, because that was a particular thing. So if, if you're interested in yeah, history, yeah, yeah. Um, after World War I, basically, uh, Germany had to pay huge reparations, sure, which sure. were too big, basically. And that's why the yeah, economy yeah. eventually trembled and the Nazis came out. Sure. Uh, long story short, Germany could not pay... Um, the reparations in the first two or three years after uh, World War One. So the French army occupied um, the Ruhrgebiet, which is the industrial center of Germany. And as a countermeasure, there was a general strike. Nobody was working anymore. And the German government started to print money to pay the workers. Sure. So there was a money increase and no production, and that's inflation. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was just a means of getting out of the reparation, basically. So, um, yeah. And what people need to understand, however, is that as something that which is stuck in the German mind. So Germans are much more uh, sensible about inflation than other countries are, because we've like basically what happened. And because it gets you into world wars. Um, yeah, and 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 it 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 uh, destroys what your family has sure, has, sure. has built up. My grandfather after World War II. Um, he checked in the life insurance companies of the last three employees we had to buy new barley to restart the business mm. after World War II. Yeah? And when the new money was issued after World War II, um, there was something they called the, the, uh, the head money, the, uh, the Kopfgeld, 40 marks per person. That was given out to the people. That's how the economy started. 40 marks per person. How, how long can you go over $40? Right. Yeah? I mean, so this is... Uh, a societal memory thing which Germans have gone through, which um, it will fade over time with new generations. But my father still knows that. And so they're much more receptible to <gasps> inflation 10%. Oh my God, what's going on now? You know, that's a totally different story for Germans than for, for anyone else. In and, and I guess in, in, in other countries in the United States with 10% inflation, people are very too. Yeah. So, okay, that's out of the beer range. So this created a, an impetus for this pale beer, this Hellas. Exactly. So um, in the 1920s, my great-grandfather, um, he desperately needed customers. Uh, so there, there was the, the continuous smoke beer supply and there was our tavern, as you pointed out, as a base of business, but that wasn't enough. So he got a contract with the German Reichsbahn, the, uh, the, train, uh, the train system, um, to supply the Bamberg train station with beer. And they said, yeah, we take your smoke beer, that's okay. But we also want uh, a, standard, a standard beer. And at the time, the pay lagers had become, uh, or had started, uh, like today pay lager, uh, Helles in, in Germany is like on, on a big rise and every brewery tries to bring up a Helles. And again, one of the first breweries to have a Helles was the Spaten Brewery. And uh, my grandfather basically took that idea and said, okay, we do a Helles as well. And so in the 1920s, he designed that beer. I don't know how much design at the time went into. Um, 
but the residue smoke flavor just was in there because at the time there was just the, the one yeast. You you couldn't go to a, a laboratory or supplier right, right. and get new yeast. So you would con constantly use your own yeast. So there was the smoky flavor in there. And he never marketed it very much. So he used it to supply that contract to give a basis business to the brewery. But um, it, it wasn't commercialized in any way. There were no ads for it. And over time, it became the secret tip of the town. And a lot of craft people would drink it because it had only 4.3% alcohol and um, a very rich flavor because that teeny weeny bit of smokiness adds really a full character to it. And starting in the 1960s and 70s, my father started to supply supermarkets with a classic smoked beer. Um, again, that was something new at the time. Yeah? Uh, originally, people would go to the brewery with a big pitcher and get the beer there and then take it home with them. Um, bottle supply was totally new in the 60s and 70s for small breweries. The bigger ones were doing it before. And very quickly, the supermarkets were asking for the pay lager as well. So nowadays you find it in all the supermarkets here in Bamberg. We still don't do commercials for it. It's still the secret thing um, to, 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 to pass around. And on all the family gatherings, we drink that. The staff drinks that. Yeah, they, they swiggle it from, from the lagering vessel. Um, on the day of German national beer, uh, 23rd of April, um, day of the purity law, we're going to serve it unfiltered here in our tavern, but just that one day. <laughs> Other than that, we don't serve it here yeah. because it's not a full smoke beer. So... Yeah, it's a the little the secret Schlenkala, if you will. Schlenkala secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking for a while here. When do we uh when do we zoom out a little bit before we finish? Uh you know, we typically uh you know, try to end the podcast thinking about uh you know, what's next and what the big picture is. The history of Schlenker law is a very very long one. Clearly maintaining this history is important. For the brewery continuing these traditions you know now in in its uh, in a multi-century approach you know is, is a key piece um in the way that you are managing uh you know now in this brewery um how, what do you what do you hope to see within the next 10 years or what scale do you now plan at for this brewery looking at the future it may not be a 10-year plan it may be a longer plan than that how how do you envision and, and uh, look at the future for Schlenker Law? I guess the, the, the best term could be found in the proverb, which at one point I found somewhere in the internet, we have it on our website. Um, keeping tradition does not mean to preserve the ashes, it means to keep the fire burning. And that's what I want to do in my generation at Schlenker um, to keep things the way they are, um, to keep the traditional smoke beer the way it is, uh, to Extended to a point that we show people what other historic smoke beers there were. I mean, that's the thing we're doing this uh, this year. Also, from a historic point of view, bringing uh, and continuing to to support other historic beers like the Heinzlein, and maybe one or two of the recipes from my ancestors' uh, recipe book outside the smoke beer range, because there's quite some interesting things people uh, brewers did here in Bamberg with beer, which was not done elsewhere. So I think we have some some more interesting points there for the future. Um, regarding scale, I don't want to grow. Um, keep Schlenkel the size it is. Uh, I think uh, upscaling, which might be possible with the right logistics and, and mass marketing, but uh, bringing up the scale would be a danger to the preservation of the historic way of doing things. Because 
you would have to build the kiln larger or have additional kilns. You need additional facilities and that. And that all doesn't work. We're on the historic brewing site. We have the uh, rock cellars underneath the brewery in which we lager the beer. And it has been lagered there since the 14th century. And that all does something for the flavor. And also when we do brewery tours, um, which we do on rare occasions for special guests, um, you always see these this wow effect from the people. It's like, whoa, this is like a brewery like it used to be, which you don't find anywhere else. Um, modern craft breweries, um, you, you have a hall somewhere, you have the modern uh, uh, stainless steel equipment, everything one floor, very efficient, very good on hygiene and quality, optimal for modern brewing, but it doesn't have the the feeling of a traditional brewery. And in Schlenkele, we we convey historic flavors, historic way of making beer, but also, and that shouldn't be forgotten, historic atmosphere. That's why we have the historic interior here in the tavern. That's why we still use the wooden barrels for pouring the beer. It does something to the flavor, but it also does something to the mind when you see, oh my God, they're rolling this wooden barrel in here and there's a beer coming from that. And already you are accept, uh, expecting a different flavor and it is a different flavor, but the experience of that is enhancing it. And to make a long story short, Schlenkeler is a living dinosaur and we want to keep it and pet it the way it, it was and, and, and keep it that way. Don't change. Stay the way it is. I think that is a great place to bring this to a close. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Explore Hopsteiner's varieties like Bravo, Calypso, Lemon Drop, Lotus and Sultana available from BSG. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. Join the AccuBrew community and experience 24-7 peace of mind. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduce waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. Dial in your brewing water with systems from US Water. Twin Monkeys offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft. Discover the whole soft lager range by Fermentus and ABS Commercial is your full service brewery outfitter. Of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, tell us that this content matters to you, and of course, access plenty more content from some of the world's greatest brewers. Um, Matthias, if people want to learn more about Schlenkerla, where can they find more about you, both in the digital space as well as in person uh, right here in Bamberg? Well, our website is smokebeer.com. There's a basic description of the brewing process. Um, if you're interested more in the history of beer, uh, brewing, my thesis for mine, Stefan, is online. When you Google brewing star, the, star, um, the, um, the, the brewing symbol of, of the old brewmasters, of the brewing guilds, that's online as well. Um, the German address is brauerstand.de. So there's a lot of written there. Um, through the Schlenkler website, you can drop me an email. And um, I'm often here at the tavern as well. So, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, put them to me. Um, though with all the historic uh, secrets of the family, I'm sorry, those I won't share. <laughs> well, we appreciate you sharing what you have. Uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been wonderful talking with you and, of course, drinking some classic Meritzen while we do it. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me and I hope everybody enjoyed the show today. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 